Coming up, singer, songwriter, and all-round great guy Alan Doyle talks about his new book, A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. A musician friend of mine said something to me one time that that uh, that stuck with me, and it's about live performance and about capturing a live moment. And he said, you know, because I think we were talking about if my voice was getting sore or if, you know, whatever, what do I do on nights when it's not, you know, as good as I hope it was or this kind of thing. And and he said, well, you know, Alan, all the audience wants is all you got. <laughs> That's what they want. Yeah. All the audience wants is everything you got. If you give them everything, if everything you got is, you know, you can hit a high C and there's no rasp in your voice, great. Other nights, if all you got, if everything you got is a raspy voice and jokes about your mom, then give them that, you know, like, and, 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 and I, there's a, like, there, the more I, I think about that, the more lovely it is, right? Incredible change in just about every way we deliver music and entertainment and books and movies to ourselves over the last 250 years, 300, 500, 800,000 years that we've been on this planet that, you know, some guy facing one way singing a song and a bunch of people sat or standing facing him listening hasn't changed in in humanity like yeah. that's still you know i would say you know a speaker's pointing one way and a light pointing the other that's all you need and 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 you know and so somebody willing to sing a song and somebody who wants to listen to it that's it i was 10 before i realized everyone didn't play guitar <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Today, we take you on a journey. We still want you to come in, have a seat at the bar, pour yourself into Grony, sit back, and listen to the conversation as it flows through the air. But today, we take you to Newfoundland. Well, it's the next best thing to being there anyway. Alan Doyle, you know him and love him as the singer of Great Big Sea. He has a new CD out right now, a solo one, called A Week in the Warehouse. He's also got a new book out. It's called A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. It's a follow-up to a book called Where I Belong, big hit from a couple of years ago. This is a different book. This is a book about his thoughts on what it's like to leave Newfoundland. He didn't leave there till he was almost 20. First stop, London, England. Then he came back and he tours the country. Sometimes in vans, sometimes in cars, however he gets around. Now, these days he travels by plane, but he saw every inch of this country, and this new book is all about what he thought when he saw that people lived in houses in Toronto. He thought, well, you know, the pictures I've seen, they're all apartment buildings. It's just one of the many stories that he tells here about seeing houses in Toronto for the first time. I love it. I love this guy. I love talking to him. Let's enough of my blathering. Let's just get to it. This is Alan Doyle talking about a Newfoundlander in Canada, always going somewhere, always coming home. Let's talk about the record a bit. Produced by Bob Rock. It was so cool. The uh, it's a, a cool story how I ended up getting into in company with Bob Rock because he's been, of course, I'm you know I was born in '69, so I was a teenager in the '80s, and I you know I was you know such a fan of of you know folk music and traditional music and all that but my other big love like every other kid kicking around then was was metal and yeah, hair yeah. and hard rock and i <laughs> loved you know van halen and i loved acdc and i loved def leppard and i loved all that stuff and of course one of the biggest producers in the world who did that stuff was canadian 
you know, this guy Bob Rock, you know, and then on and on and on, and he was in the payolas and all that. And when I had this songs kind of started for this uh, record, and I wanted to find a producer who could produce like a band record, yeah. you know, like a record with a full band in a room, and not many people are doing that anymore. And I thought about Bob Rock, and I, I, I said uh, to my manager, Louis, I said, I think Bob Rock, and he said, man, that's a good idea. I'll try to get it tunes to him through our manager. I said, you know what? He just did Jan Arden's record, and, you know, Jan has always been kind to me, so I texted Jan, and I said, Jan, I'm trying to get some songs to Bob Rock, and he's produced a couple of Jan records, and they're friends, you know. And she said, well, I'm talking to Bob tomorrow on the phone, and I'm going to tell him to call you. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, whatever, and I figured, you know, we get a note saying send some demos to a manager or something like that. But I was picking my kid up at school in St. John's. I was driving up Torbay Road. And it was quarter after two. I'll never forget it. So I was right in front of Entel's Irving on Torbay Road. And my phone rang at 2.15. And it said, Bob Rock, Honolulu, or something like that. And I was just like, what? And I pulled over and I answered. And I said, hello? And he said, is that Alan? And I was like, yes, hello. And he goes, Alan, this is Bob Rock. Jan Arden told me I had to call you. And I'm not about to piss off Jan Arden. <laughs> and it started from there. Well, the record sounds amazing, and something, I, I, it, it, it sounds like you, but it sounds bigger or yeah. something. Is that well, him? Or is yeah, that... the band and Bob, you know, because the, uh, you know, the, I call the beautiful band who tour with me yeah. all the time now. They're incredible musicians, incredible players, and then the warehouse itself is Brian Adams' famous studio in Vancouver, yeah. and that's amazing. And you know it's a big rock room, right? It's like you can you can just really wind it up in this big brick place with a bunch of dividers through it, and it's really designed primarily to crank it up, right. like and, and and get away with it. And uh, and so that's what we did. And um, so between uh, the band, the studio itself, and Bob, who works in that studio, you know, two hundred days a year. Yeah. And this, it just makes for like a really big sounding thing. What kind of difference does it make to you to play with the whole band in the studio? Because you talk to musicians all the time now, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, the drummer emailed me the parts from his yeah. studio. Yeah. And then we dropped him in later. And yeah. then we thought, oh, it'd be fun to have some harpsichord on here. And I know a guy in Germany. And so yeah. he, That's you know, right. and, and I mean, it seems to be the way it works now, but you more, went for more, something different. Yeah, more often than not. And, and even my last record, the So Let's Go record, was primarily done like that, you yeah. know, and, and that's, that's a really fun fun way to do it because you get people from different parts of the world and different times and it's kind of stress-free about you know where everybody you don't need to worry about schedules too much because everybody's yeah. everywhere you know it's yeah, fine yeah. the thing that i missed to be honest with you was that when you do records that way where it's divided up around the world you never really look back on it and hear a consistent performance from beginning to end of the song because nobody actually performed it. Yeah, to yeah. Get, you know, like it's never. Whereas, and if you do, and since I have this great band, uh, who I'm lucky enough to have with me all the time, I really wanted to do a band record, right? I wanted to do a record because that would be different right now than everybody else is doing. You're like this is going to be no, no. We're flying. I'll go out there together. We're going to rehearse the songs. We're going to you know work with Bob on a couple of days, and then we're going to press the red button, and we're going for it. <laughs> And and that's what we did. Like we played them from beginning to end, and then we we had three vocal booths in there, and then we went in and sang them from beginning to end, backing vocals, lead vocals, all at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Which nobody does that. Nobody like, does that anymore. And does that bring you? Uh, does that bring with it kind of like this intensity? Because yeah. like you've gotten, you're, you're only going to get one or two choice. I mean, you can do it a hundred times if sure. you want, I guess. But really, you you don't want to do it a hundred no. times. You want it to be fresh. You does want it, it to be. There's an urgency to it, as you say, and there's a, uh, 
kind of a the, the best way I can describe it is that it, it what results in is a performance of yes. it, right? Because you're not singing the third line of verse three over and over again, trying to get the high note on the T. <laughs> you're singing a song, right? Yeah. And and playing a song. And and what I like the most about that in this you know day and age is that a not a lot of people are doing it that way. But also for a fellow like me, you know, I mean, I, that's what I do. You know, I mean, we play songs. You know, yeah. I don't. You know, I don't sing the third line of you know, every night <laughs> and try to get the high note on the D you know, or whatever. We and the same with the band. So let's let's create a situation under the guidance of a world class producer in a great world class studio where myself and the rest of the band, who are performers for a living, can record a version of themselves doing what they do best. Are you perfectionist? Would you say no? No. Because no, I think that, I think the beauty comes from the mistakes often, and the sort yeah. of the stuff that happens unexpected. For me, and I heard Bob say it the same way. Like you know, what's way more important to me is the moment. Mm. You know, a, a great capturing of a great performance on the day that has three round chords in it. I could yeah. care less. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I don't know. It's like, you know, your voice was a bit gravelly on that day. Cause like, yeah, there. So, so it was. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, and that, I, I love the idea that, especially, as you say, because we can make things perfect these days and tune them perfectly and yeah. move them perfectly in time and all that stuff, that, that the humanity goes out of it a little bit, you know. And that that's cool for some pop stuff and for some, you know, hard, hardcore kind of radio country stuff or whatever. It needs to be slick and it needs to be whatever. And, and I'd love to do that too. That's, yeah. There's nothing wrong with any of that. That's It's a thing, and but it wasn't the thing I was going for on this one. I saw the psychedelic furs last night. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. And, and where at the Danforth Music Hall wow. in Toronto? So you know, whatever, fifteen hundred people probably. And the thing that was great about the show is that it wasn't perfect. You know, because you all know those songs, Pretty yeah. and Pink, Heaven, and they're big, glossy, produced yeah. to an inch of their lives kind of uh, things, yeah. relics from the '80s almost. But live, they came to life because uh, mm. Richard Butler's voice is still like it's still got mm. that raspy thing, and he doesn't hit all the notes, but it doesn't matter because he was actually yeah. there working it in front of you yeah i mean a, a musician friend of mine said something to me one time that that uh that stuck with me and it's uh, about live performance and about capturing a live moment and he said you know because i think we we're talking about if my voice was getting sore or if you know whatever what do i do on nights when it's not you know as good as i hope it was yeah, yeah. or this kind of thing and and he said well you know alan all the audience wants is all you got <laughs> That's what they want. Yeah. All the audience wants is everything you got. If you give them everything, if everything you got is, you know, you can hit a high C and there's no rasp in your voice, great. Other nights, if all you got, if everything you got <laughs> is a raspy voice and jokes about your mom, then give them that, you know, like, and, 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 and I, there's a, like, there, the more I, I think about that, the more lovely it is, right? People bought a ticket because they want you to give them everything you got. That's all. Give them everything you got. I'm speaking with Alan Doyle. The book is called A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. It's in stores right now. Right you now, today. Like literally, 10, it was, it's just after 10 o'clock, the stores are open. Big big crates of them are being opened you, somewhere right sound, now and being put on that, shelves. That, that, that creaky sound you hear is boxes of <laughs> Alan Doyle books being so opened. So we've just got a couple minutes left in this segment. Tell me a little bit about the process. You spend a lot of time writing songs. I would imagine yeah. that's still the primary sure. creative outlet for you. This is different, though. Mm -hmm. The idea of sitting down and writing a book, or is it? Or is it a different part of your brain? It's. I'm not sure it's a different part of the brain, but it's a, it's a different part of the clock. Yeah. And I, you know, I stumbled into writing books. You know, 
and because the people at Random House Canada Doubleday came to me and asked me, you know, they liked the blog I was writing yeah, yeah. on the Great Big Sea website and said, you know, we think you could write a cool book. And I was like, all right, I'll give that a go, you know. And, you know, I learned, you know, during the writing of the first book, quite surprisingly, that novel writing or book writing or long-form prose, whatever you want to call it, is actually an amazing companion to a traveling musician's life. Mm. You know, because the the darkest times for a, a traveling musician are are the times that, you know, when you show up in a town at 8.30 in the morning and your show is 8.30 that night and you really got to try to figure out what you're going to do. And you know, not get in too much spe- trouble. Yeah, and like, uh, well, all that, like, I've always said, you know, like people have like, you know, the sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll times, you know, like, and, and I always say, we would say, yeah, you know, the temptations of the drink or the drugs and all this kind of stuff. I say, you know what? The more I travel and the more I play in a band for a living, the more I, I think I'm right that those things aren't the disease. Those 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 things are the symptoms. Mm, yeah. The disease is loneliness and guilt about being away from your family and sitting by yourself in a hotel room or whatever. And I find, for me, the road is way more fun if I don't have any downtime. Right. And if I and but of course physically, I need downtime because I got to play a gig and all that. So but even so it's like I, I can't go you know mountain bike for eight hours. Yeah yeah yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah yeah. So I need I need something that takes me when I'm on the road that I can do for two hours where I'm not talking, I'm not you know exercise. I'm just being very still and quiet, yeah. and and writing books is fantastic for that. Yeah. Go sit in a coffee shop in a strange town, put on your headphones and write a thousand words or whatever. Awesome. And then like the other big thing for me, of course, is airplanes. Like I, I you know, I travel in Europe and North America, you know, you know, a hundred times a year. But I live in St. John's, Newfoundland. Yeah. Right. So that means You're on you're on a lot of planes. That's yeah. about three hundred hours a year on a plane. Just St. John's Toronto leg. You wrote with a lot of different people on this. Yeah, it's like the, you look at the the songwriting credits here; yeah. it's kind of all over the place. I do love co-writing songs. I'm one of the guys, one of the only guys I know that would rather co-write a song than write a song. <laughs> I don't like doing anything by myself, you know. And it's like, uh, you know, we talked about book writing before the break, and and it's one of the things that's odd about me writing books is that's primarily work that you do by yourself, solitary, yeah. right? And and that's that's another part of therapeutically for me that is necessary because even like I say, when I go to write songs, my first instinct, my first instinct when I get to do anything, it's like, I get this thing, doing a thing. It was like, well, who else will do that with me? That's fantastic. <laughs> Let's go like, you know, if I get an acting job, I go, who else is doing it? Let's, you know, or I get like, <laughs> we got an empty bus, an empty bunk on the bus. Great. Call Doug. We can, you know? yeah, <laughs> we can use another fiddle player. Yeah. Woo. Like, well, what's better than seven? Eight. You know, like, and, uh, so yeah, I love it. I love to collaborate. Collaborate. I mean, the collaboration of writing songs with people in a room, and because the, the biggest reason I like it is because it gets done. Yeah. Because you go like, guess what? You got to write a song with Donovan Woods tomorrow at two o'clock. All right, let's go. Hey Donovan, how's it going, man? Nice to see you. Let's write a song, and then we can go get a pint if we write a song. You know, like. Well, the funny thing I find when I've written a bunch of books, and and whenever I'm writing a book, working on a book, my house is never cleaner than it is when I'm working on a book, because yeah. I'll do anything, anything other, other than, than write. write. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, I, in a perfectly, you know, uh, way for me, I don't think I wrote five sentences of either of the books in my own house. Is that right? Eh? Oh. Yeah. Just all on the road. Almost all on the road, yeah. Almost 99% of it, both books. You know, uh, and so, 
I think because I was home. My God, you got, you got home, been away for three weeks. And your kids are around. Yeah, you geez, got, yeah. you got to go. Someone's got to put on the snow tires. You know, like. <laughs> 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 but this isn't a life on the road book. No, not no. It's not like uh, I mean, Dave Bedini's on a cold road is a great book about being on the I road and about book. Canada and all yeah. that. This is a different thing. And so let's go back a little bit here. Uh, you talk about growing up in Petty Harbor. You called it a fantasy camp for a little boy. It was, yeah. And tell me why. Well, and, and again, I only knew that in kind of retrospect. But I mean, as a kid, from the age of six to thirteen or fourteen, you know, I, the door opened in the morning. And I closed it behind me sometime after you know, supper time, yeah, you know, yeah. and and the day was yours to make, you know, and and there was all kinds of fun and trouble to get up to, <laughs> the consequences of which were yours and yours alone, you know, and and that was amazing. And it, but but all that said, it was also kind of really safe, you know, because it was a small little harbor town, and if your mother and father couldn't see you, well, somebody <laughs> probably could, yeah, you know, yeah. and. And it was, it was so you were given responsibility of looking after your own time at a very young age, mm -hmm. and and even you know we got, in retrospect too, and again I didn't discover this until I really did the book was you know taught lessons that just stay with you your whole life like when you get a childhood like I had like who who would have thought that you know a kid in like the, the late seventies and early eighties who goes down onto the wharf in Petty Harbor, Newfoundland, and cuts out cod tongues yeah. and works with the fishermen in the inshore cod fishery, that that kid would take the lessons he learned from that very specific thing with him for the rest of his life. Like, but it's true. And, and what is that? Discipline? Well, well, it's just like, like it, reward very, for work? The simplest things. Like, you go like, yeah, like, like you learn that if you worked hard, you got more. Yeah. Right? You learned that if you worked as a team, you did better again. You learned that if, you know, and if you were fair and honest with the crowd you were selling stuff to, you, you, it worked out better for you than if you didn't. That's right. And like those are very, very basic things that people never sometimes have an early chance to learn. And even like stuff like as, like, that, that without knowing it, we were participating in the town's economy as 10 year olds. Right. You know, like that's, that's big. Yeah. You know, and, 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 so th those things stay with you, and so I always think that you know I was so lucky to be born where I was born, when I was born there. You know, do you go back? Oh yeah, because you you live. I mean, Newfoundland's way bigger. If you've never been there, Newfoundland's yeah. way bigger than you think it is. I think. It is, yeah, it's enormous. Yeah, yeah it is, and yeah. and so Petty Harbor is not close to St. John's. Well, it's about it's it's a drive, you know, it's to St. John's, and when I moved to St. John's in you know, really in my late teens, when I started going to university in St. John's, I fell in love with the city, you know, I wanted because yeah. it was, you know, there was lots to do and there was, and I felt like I had done everything I could do in Petty Harbor then, which wasn't true, but that's the way I felt when I was 17, you yeah, know, yeah. and there was girls there I wasn't directly related to and stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> it was a no-brainer. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I fell in love with St. John's and I've lived in St. John's ever since. Now, do you think that growing up in Petty Harbor, I, I have this idea. I grew up in a really small place in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And uh, years after I left, some magazine, American magazine, did a tour of all these small places in the country and said, the kids in Lunenburg County, Nova Scotia, are the most creative because they've got nothing. <laughs> There's no yeah. connection to the outside world for yeah. them. And that was certainly true. I, it's not true now, I think, because it has right. changed everything. Yeah. But when I was growing up down there, uh, the world was, you know, the, the 20 blocks around your house. 
Same with me. And, and you had to figure it out yourself. Yeah, I mean, and, Petty Harbor was surrounded by steep hills on three sides and the Atlantic Ocean yeah, on the other. Yeah, yeah. That's it, you know? And so we, whatever we made, we were making in there, and that was it. And, and you had to figure it out yourself. You had to figure it out yourself. And, I mean, that goes back generations in Newfoundland for many different things, right? Like the economy in those small places is often very insular, right? Yeah. It's very, you know, we're trading with buddy across the way, and the fish comes and goes, and that's it, you know? And then... They, even in the entertainment, you know, which I love so much, and the stories and the songs and all that stuff, Newfoundland in particular, right, is, you know, you have to, if you wanted a song song on Friday night, you had to sing it. Yeah. Right? And you want to, you know, have a dance. Well, someone had to play for the dance. Yeah. You know, and that's it, you know. And, I, I like, even when I started traveling in through, say, the Midwest of the United States, where people talk all the time about, man, I got to get out of this town, you know, <laughs> stuck in this town, you know, like, if I could just make it to Chicago. It's like, it's right there. <laughs> it's 90 <laughs> kilometers down the road. You could walk there today, you know, like, and, and like, in the entertainment part of it, yeah. it's like, even if you're in like Wichita or whatever in the 1950s and my parents, you know, generation or whatever, like there, there's not a impossible that on some Thursday or Friday or Saturday night in the summer that a bus didn't roll through with right. Dean Martin on it. Yeah. Because they did that all the time. Yeah. But there's nobody coming to Petty Harbor <laughs> on Friday night. Still, you know, so, <laughs> you know, you had to do it yourself and, 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 and the entertainment and the songs and the stories and all that stuff uh, all were our own. Uh, were our own. You recorded this at Brian Adams Warehouse Studio Correct. with Bob Rock in one week. That's right. Seven yeah. days, man. Yeah, That's we, like the Beatles, right? I know. We <laughs> loaded in there and off we went. And, and Saturday we started and the next Saturday we sat down listening to all the rough mixes. It was so cool. Yeah, because that's old school. That's the that's way it used school. to be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and an energy comes with that that you really hear on the record. Thank so you. Yeah, record that, CD. Thanks so much. Digital download. I, I still say record. I, I can help it. Too. And yeah, it was. It's a thrill. It's a real thrill to have it out there. And it's a, it was so fun to do. And and even kind of we're talking about you know doing it the other way with people all over the world with different computers in their bedrooms. <laughs> There's a, there's a satisfaction to making things around the world globally at the same time, and that's super fun and super cool. And But there's one of the things that I missed about doing a record, when I did a record like that, or a couple of records like that, was you don't sit back on a day like today and remember that time right. the buddy across from me or the girl across from me played a fiddle solo during a take that blew your mind. You know, and it's like, and, and just all of a sudden the game just got upped. Yeah. And then everyone had to respond to it or not, you know, like, and that fun when you're a musician for a living, that's, that's really fun times, man. Like where you're in a room together, just trying to, you know, up the game for everybody and raise the bar and inspire the people around you to, to, uh, you know, to be better than they might've been. Is that maybe what got you going on music in the first place? I, you know, shamefully, in a way, was much more pra practical and pragmatic than that. What, what got me going on music in the first place is I realized in kitchen parties at my house that if I sang songs, I got to stay up later. <laughs> As yeah. a nine-year-old, you yeah. had to go to bed at 10 o'clock. That's you a sang, potent lesson for a nine-year-old. Unless you sang day. songs, then you could stay up as late as you know how many songs you had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you spend the week learning songs, you can stay I'm, up I'm, But I'm from a family of musicians, right? So, yeah. you know, my father and my mom and my, my uncles are all players and, and great singers and all that stuff. And and I, you know, in, in, in the funniest kind of way, I was, you, know, you, you always hear people say that, you know, they learned their lessons the hard way. Right. You know, and I always say, when, especially when it comes to musical, I learned all my lessons the easy way. Yeah. I don't remember learning half of them. Yeah, just surrounded you know? by family. Yeah, it's yeah. like I was 10 before I realized everyone didn't play guitar. I was like, oh, 
<laughs> why, why don't you play guitar? Like, you know, I ever play guitar. The book is called The Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. Uh, Alan Doyle, so let's get sort of to the meat of this. It's kind of your recollections, or you're, you're discovering the rest of Canada yeah. on tours with Great Big Seas and wow. crisscrossing the country. So how would you say, we'll start at kind of the beginning of all this, how are Newfoundlanders different than people in the rest of the country? Well, first, there's two big reasons. The, the, the first reason is that we occupy a really unique place geographically, mm -hmm. and we've talked about it already. You yeah. know, it's like it's literally on the very, very, very edge of it. So if you're going to discover the country that you're in, we only, first of all, can only go one direction. Yeah, that's right. That's it. You can go that way if you want, but you're going to get wet. Yeah. But, you know, so everything <laughs> is the other way. And in, in the history of it as well, two big things. In the history of it, first of all, if you were a kid like me who grew up, like you say, in the late 70s and early 80s, I, I didn't sound like anybody I saw on Canadian television. Right. But I sounded like everybody I saw from Ireland. Yeah. Right? The music I played and my mom and dad played was way more from the south of Ireland than it was from anywhere in Canada. You know? Uh, yet, in the po political history, of course, and the strangest twist of fate ever, my mom and dad were born in a little fishing town in the 1940s, right? I was born in that same fishing town about 20 years later. Me and my mom and dad were born in different countries. Right, yeah. Right? They weren't born in Canada. And like, so you have these like three generations, say for example, just say the Doyles and Pitty Harbor, three generations of Doyles and Pitty Harbor. So my grandfather, right, was born in Canada and grew up and was an adult, sorry, in Newfoundland, yeah. and grew up and was an adult in Newfoundland, and when the vote came to join Canada, he would have, people like him from the geographical part of Newfoundland Island typically voted no, right. right? And, you know, we was very reluctantly accepted the fact that we had given away our independence and joined another country. Yeah. Uh, so then along comes the next generation, my dad, who was born in Newfoundland, and then the vote happened when he was five or six years old, and then all of a sudden was Canadian. I know, okay, well, whatever. And so they had this, they occupied this odd space where they, uh, you know, had like one foot in the old world and one right. foot in the new. Then the next generation's me, right? So I'm really the first generation of, of the Doyles from Petty Harbor who were born in Canada and were, you know, became young adults aware that they were Canadian. Right. Yet my grandfather's generation were all still kicking around telling me, that I probably shouldn't be part of that at all. And that <laughs> yeah, you, should, yeah. you know, and then you had my parents' generation who weren't sure what to say about any of it. And and of course I knew the truth of it. It was that I'm I'm Canadian. Yeah. Right? And like when Hockey Night in Canada comes on, that's I'm I'm there I'm in that country. That you know, with Toronto and Montreal on it, I'm in that's I'm part of that. But of course I didn't know anything about it. Right. And my mom and dad knew nothing about any of it, right? So the incidental things that I think most kids and their young teenage life and their, you know, know about their country. I didn't know any of it. I didn't know anything. Like, you know, I knew that Toronto was where the Leafs played right. and where people from Newfoundland went to get jobs. That's right. Yeah, right? Yeah. And, or, 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 and, and I knew that there was this cool place where the Montreal Canadiens played where people dressed up to go to hockey games <laughs> and smoked and it looked amazing, you know, yeah. or whatever. And I knew there was a place out west that had mountains in it. And I knew there was like a robot looking CN Tower, rockety looking thing. Like, <laughs> it's about it, you yeah, know, yeah. as a six or eight year old kid. And, and so that's, those two things combined, the geographical isolation and the unique place in history that I found myself born into, 
makes for a really interesting lens for a kid to go to discover the country that apparently he's part of. And you didn't leave Newfoundland for the first time until you were 20. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 And so what was, tell me about that. Like, what what was that like for you the first time that you landed Toronto? Um... The first, I remember the first time really... And the attitudes of people. I guess that's the question. Yeah. And the attitudes of people because... Yeah. Well, the first time I really spent any time in Toronto, of course, is when it came to Great Big Sea, mm-hmm. in, in, which would have been in 1994, I right. guess. In the, and, uh, and I just... like the, First of all, like everything... You're, you're, you're blown away by the sight of it, yeah. first of all, right? And the first thing, of course, we did around the 401, you know, four guys in a rental car <laughs> trying to figure out how to get downtown Toronto on the 401, which yeah. looked like some calamity had happened and there was hundreds of thousands of cars driving on a, a runway from an airport <laughs> or something, you know, and then like fish out of water stuff, you know, and you get, and I remember it's funny for Toronto people, you know, think of it, but I, w- we ended up, we're coming, I guess, on the Don Valley, what I think now is the Don Valley, I suppose. And we, we got off somewhere at the wrong place or something. And we ended up down in the beaches coming. As I said, we got to, we know we had to come towards the CN Tower, so we just drove towards that. <laughs> and, and you got to remember, of course, this is long before anybody had a GPS in their yeah, car, yeah, right, yeah, like that. Yeah. And I remember driving along by the beaches and going, like, being completely shocked that Toronto had a beach. Yeah. Like, I've never heard ever <laughs> anything about this beach, you know, ever. Like, when I was in my 20s, yeah. no one ever mentioned to me that Toronto had a beach, right? And foolishly, this is the most foolish one, I looked, like, I looked to my left and I saw this beach I never heard of, but then I looked to my right and I saw something that never would have, I would have never thought I would have ever seen in Toronto, ever. Houses. Yeah. Right. And I was like, look at that. They got houses. I thought it was like Manhattan. Yeah, or everyone something. lived in an apartment. Buildings. I mean, yeah. all, when I saw the Hockey Night in Canada, all you saw was the buildings, you know? And so, but it was all those kind of sort of culture shocks things and, and, and just the mass of it and, and, and was just shocking and, and I was just such a, I remained such a curious person. I couldn't wait to get out and wander around in it, you know, and, and see what it was like. And, and I, you know, I just, I loved it. Like from the, just cause I always wanted to see what's going on and there's a lot going on here compared to home. So that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and in the book, you talk about, uh, the word Nufi. Yeah. This is not a good word. We don't like, we, yeah. and, and but, well, people don't agree about it, but I mean, even Newfoundlanders do, 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 don't yeah, agree. Yeah. You know? So, because, you know, when I was growing up, you don't hear them so much, but there was yeah. the ubiquitous kind of new feature yeah. and it was always kind of like, I don't know, how stupid is this guy? It must yeah. be a new That's always the punchline. Stupid, line, right? drunk, lazy people. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, and of course, when I was a kid, like in, again, in the late seventies or eighties or whatever, those, like those kind of joke books always confused me because I grew up in this town, right? Like this little fishing town, Pity Harbor, right? Where the fishermen got up two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's right. Right? Fished <laughs> their guts out till, you know, such as that. And then, and then they cut wood all winter and mended nets and built their own house. And I was like, who are these stupid people? <laughs> the like, stupid ladies. You, know, you talk about the, the ladies in the town, of course, where I grew up, and they could all, you know, my favorite saying is that they could knit an arse in a cat. <laughs> You know, they could just do anything. They could make supper out of rocks and grass, you know? And like, and I, and I was like, who are these, like, where are these stupid, lazy people that we're talking about? Like, where where are they? Like, where, how did these jokes start? And of course, you know, the etymology of the whole thing about Newfies, like, I think the people that stand by Newfie honestly think that it's, a, it's a, just a friendly and lovely abbreviation right. for Newfoundlander. And I wish that was true. I really do. But it's not. Yeah. And in order for me to like the word, I got to forget what I know. 
And what I know is that it was, you know, it was started in the Second World War. And, you know, the American soldiers who were stationed in Newfoundland, who were quite worldly people on fancy boats with fancy clean uniforms and the like, you know, showed up in this place that was, you know, quite, you know, underdeveloped compared to the parts of the, perhaps the United States that they were from yeah, yeah. and the technology of the U.S. Navy and Air Force and the like. And, you know, they thought, you know, that the people around them were slow, you know, and because they didn't understand the value, you know, of the work and the, of the knowledge that they had. And so they, you know, the, the, the soldiers that were sent to Newfoundland were called Newfie Johns and the abbreviation for the slow people that they saw around them was Newfie. And that's how it started, you know. And, and so people say, well, what's wrong with Newfie? I'll say, well, that's what's wrong with Newfie. It's just a nickname. No, I'm sorry. I'm glad you think it's just a nickname, but it's not, you know. And uh, so it's, like I said, it's, in order for me to, 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 in, to like it and accept it, I have to make my brain forget what it was intended to do. I think once you grow up on the ocean, I grew up right on the ocean the, yeah. with the, literally the sound of the waves crashing in the background at night yeah. when I slept, you know, and once you grow up with that, it stays with you forever. Yeah. And it's, it becomes this geographical anchor for me when I'm traveling too. It's like I always cities, towns, whatever, start at some body of water and go from there. Mm -hmm. right? In my mind, that's how they should go. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's how I find my way around them. And whenever I get to like a landlocked city, I'm completely and hopelessly lost <laughs> instantly. Start searching for fountains, anything. Anything. <laughs> uh, the book is called The Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. When we left, I, I teased that I was going to ask you about something you said the last time you were here, a couple of years ago. Uh, you said, in Newfoundland, truth is really stranger than fiction. And I remember you telling me a story about it, like a magical squid. Does that yeah. ring a bell? Yeah, well, like... I, I mean, it's. I worked in the Newfoundland Museum for years, you know, before I started playing in band for a living. I loved that job. It was so great. And one of the things we had, you know, like in the museum, and it's now on display in the new rooms, or was anyway, up in the uh, maritime exhibition at the rooms uh, in Newfoundland, St. John's, uh, was a giant squid, you know, and like, and like it was just there, you know, yeah. like it wasn't even on display for the first five or six years I worked there. It was just <laughs> in this big tank downstairs, you know, this like 15 foot squid, right? And I mean, I just remember like when, you know, going reading some books and especially when I started touring on the mainland, it's going like all these, you know, fairy tales of like sea monsters yeah. and all this like impossible myths of giant, you know, octopuses and squids as big as a man. I go like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, you know, all these like, sea stories that are exaggerated. It's like. There's a giant squid in the basement. <laughs> just come down here and, and like and there's I have, there's dozens of equivalents like that where like well like the things in Newfoundland that we that it, like it's where the myths are true. Right. It is where there's a giant squid in the basement in a tank. Want to go say one? The doggy caught one last week. It's done. You know. And like these things that people have been searching for in mythology for years. Yeah. There's there's nine downstairs. Just come look at like there's another famous story. There's a. Um, um, uh, like a Viking settlement in around Lancer yeah. Meadows, right up in the top. And there was a, a group of people, you know, who searched through the sagas for decades because they suspected that the Vikings might have had a foothold somewhere in North America. And after so many years of thesis, they figured, you know, I wonder if it was coastal Newfoundland. And then it was a few, then they went to Italy to look at some old books in England, the history books, and it was literally a decade of their lives. And finally they make, you know, on a whim, they said, well, let's go just you know, see if we can find some, you know, 
anecdotal evidence or something in the local people. And so they show up on the very first day, I think, in St. Anton, and they go, oh, what are you guys doing here? Nice to see you. Yeah, we're, well, we're actually... We're actually here on a bit of a funny one. We're, we're kind of, we have a suspicion that there might be a history of some Viking landings here. Oh, yeah, the Viking stuff is just over there. Uh, that's the, see all those mounds over there? That's Viking stuff, yeah. And it's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, just over there. Yeah, there's all Vikings were here a long time ago, apparently. And like, I love that. So you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Viking stuff, yeah. That's where the Vikings were. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. How, how has Newfoundland changed? Well, because it, it, it seems to me set in time, and yeah. I know that's not true. Yeah, it's but. not. The, um, well, the, right around when Great BC was starting, of course, in the early 90s, the cod fishery moratorium mm-hmm. happened. And that was a serious blow because, of course, that's the whole reason most of rural Newfoundland yeah. existed. That's the, those towns, hundreds of them, dozens of them at least, were settled for exactly one reason. To catch codfish. Yeah. That's all there that's what they did, you know? And for hundreds of years in some cases, that's uh, that was the livelihood of the place. And when that industry got taken away from them, the towns really struggled and have been struggling ever since to find a new way to survive. And now some of them have. Mm-hmm. Some of them have done a great job of it. Well, you're seeing more like uh, stuff like breweries and yeah. like interesting little businesses. Eco tourism and yeah. you know, and the and the internet world hasn't uh, hasn't hurt those type mm-hmm. things where people can live in rural places and do digital work of yep. various kinds. And, you know, so dozens of those towns have made uh, a new life for themselves and a new economy for themselves. Hundreds of those towns haven't. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the, there's a mass emigration of Newfoundlanders away, but that's kind of always been the case. But even within Newfoundland, uh, people are resettling either by action or by default to larger centers to get services and work and the like. And and they're all drifting towards St. John's, yeah. right? So, you know, I mean, I would honestly estimate there's around 500,000 people in Newfoundland, you know, right now on the island. And my, I, I would be willing to bet that 350,000 of them live within 20 minutes of my house yeah. in St. Yeah. John's. Yeah. And that wasn't the case. And, of course, it's getting older, you know, because the young families are having to move away more and more, Since, especially since the big dip, like, a few years back in the oil biz. Felt like we had a good thing going for a while there, but it took a quick turn down. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's changed in that regard. And, and, of course, that's the negative part of it. But it's also changed for the, like, just an incredible sort of cultural renaissance in Newfoundland. Even, I don't even know if renaissance is the right word because right. that implies something has come back that was once great. Yeah. I don't know if Newfoundland was ever a great culinary place, you know, in <laughs> the 50s. The, the restaurants now, though. Oh, my God. Like, and it's all amazing, local, authentic yeah. stuff. And this, like, this creation of, like, Newfoundland as, as dare I say it, like, Kind of a cool place, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, you know, with these beautiful inns being made on the Fogo Island down, yeah. and you know, restaurants like you know, very homey, high end, cool places like Mallard Cottage and and high end, world class, you know, fine dining like at Raymond's and all those places, and like like Saint. If someone had told me that, man, yeah, ten years ago, Saint John's is going to be a culinary hotspot. I was like. You are off your head. Well, it, it seems to me like tourism has picked up because yeah. just more and more now, it, it, every day someone said, oh, yeah, I just got back from Newfoundland. I'm hearing yeah. it all the time. Well, People are going a couple down. of big great moves there that the Williams government made, and one of them was you know, the, encouraging a, 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 a large convention facility in downtown St. John's, right. right? Right across from the hockey rink, uh, which is also a great idea that, you know, because it has this. We have a, 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 you know, a 
you know what it's like. Every company in Canada has a one-year retreat, once a year, a little yeah, retreat yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And most of them have been everywhere else. So let's go to Newfoundland. Great. Yeah. You know, and because and, they got a spot to do it now. And the tourism infrastructure has really, really improved a lot. Yeah. And, and with the restaurants and it's all just It's stuff. just become yeah. a, you know, a more accessible destination with the, you know, because you can book stuff digitally, of course. And... And um, the airport is fantastic in St. John's for a plate for our size. And so it has, those are some of the things that have changed that just made, that have kind of opened the doors in Newfoundland and Labrador. The book is called A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. Alan Doyle's the author of the CD, which came out at the same time. It's called A Week at the Warehouse. Yeah. It's fantastic, produced by Bob Rock. And there's a great quote here that, that I think we just got a few minutes left. And I, I wanted to throw this at you. I figure if people show up at my concerts, I might be able to do another concert. If they buy my book, I might be able to do another one. Yeah. And I love the idea that every time you do something, you got to throw yourself at it because it might be the last time. I don't yeah. know if it's an East Coast thing. I have it. You definitely have it. Yeah. It's, it's, it is ingrained, I think. There's a gratitude, I think, for those of us to get a chance to do something that we love to do. Yeah. And we figure that, the, that we're grateful enough to get to do it once. <laughs> you can't believe your luck, you know. Yeah. And then if there's any chance at all you might get to do it a second time, then you better be all in on the first time. <laughs> and then if you want a third time, well, you better be all in on the second time and so on and so on. I feel like still, to, in all honesty, that, you know, that if I don't give everything I have to all the the various arts projects that I do, especially live performance, you know, it's like, I don't have a chance, man. Yeah. Like, like, I, I, first of all, it would be deeply unsatisfying for me. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go out and sing, you know, songs half-heartedly. What's the fun in that? Yeah. You know, like, or go out and dance to a click track or something, you know, like, well, yeah, like what do I do that? Like, you know, like, or, or build a safety net in a concert so that, you know, who cares about that? You know, it's like, it's supposed to be mistake. dangerous. Yeah. Right? yeah. Gord Downey once told me, it was a brilliant quote from Gord when we were touring with the hip. He said, well, Alan, it's not a great concert unless something happens tonight that only happened tonight. Yeah. And he said, if that's a good thing, well, that's good. If that's a bad thing, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love live shows. We, I, I, I go see as much live music as I can. Go see a very job is watching movies. I'm a film critic, but... I love the idea that a live show like you'll do the next time you step on stage after it's over only exists in your audience's mind. Yeah. You can't go back and to look me, at it again and it makes those memories. To me, there's, there's literally, and I can't overstate it, that's magic. Yeah. That's magic that, you know, with, you know, incredible change in just about every way we deliver music and entertainment and books and movies to ourselves over the last 250 years, 300, 500, 800,000 years that we've been on this planet that, you know, some guy facing one way singing a song and a bunch of people sat or standing facing him listening hasn't changed in in humanity. Like yeah. that's still, you know, I would say, you know, a speaker's pointing one way and a light pointing the other. That's all you need. And, and, and you know... And so somebody willing to sing a song and somebody who wants to listen to it. That's it. All the rest is bells and whistles, but that's the gig. You probably feel like you've just been to Newfoundland. Well, there's no screech unless, hey, maybe there's a bottle of screech behind the bar. You know what? You'll have to find out next time because that's all the time we have 
for today. You got to take off. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. But I'm so glad that you spent some time with us and got to know Alan Doyle a little bit more. Check out his first book as well, Where I Belong. And then pick up a Newfoundlander in Canada, always going somewhere, always coming home. You just heard what a great way he has with the story. Well, the book is just filled with those stories. Charming, great stuff. Alan Doyle, he's a good guy. He's always welcome at the House of Krauss. Right now, though, though, that's it. We're shutting it down. Thanks so much for coming by. We want to thank Alan, but mostly we want to thank you. Without you, there'd be no reason to do this. So every week you come back, make sure you keep coming back. Though We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows, it just might be one of your favorite people. So make sure you come back and spend some time with us.